Well, I want to say, Jonah can be a very frustrating biblical character, right? We tend to want our Bible characters to be like our superheroes. They tend to just be good guys and bad guys. Uh, It's easy to identify, and we know what to think when we read about them. We know, oh, this is a good guy, this is a bad guy, and we can compartmentalize them. But the Bible doesn't do that. Characters are often complex, and they tend to show us ourselves. The only constant is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is the only constant. He never changes. He never compromises. He is the one that we want to know about. He is the one we want to follow. We last left Jonah in the belly of the fish. I don't even think last week we mentioned the fact that at the end of chapter 2, he is vomited out. It's a beautiful picture. (laughs) Although he can always wash himself, right? As, As horrible and disgusting as that picture seems to us, it is far, far, far better than what the alternative was, which was death for the prophet. God, in his love and his grace, saves Jonah in this fish, a fish who obeyed God and saves the disobeying prophet. And this morning we're looking at this recommissioning of Jonah to go to Nineveh. He has run from the presence of God even though he knows that he cannot escape the eye of the Lord. And he refuses to go to Nineveh because he knows that God is gracious and forgiving. And so God is gracious and forgiving to Jonah. And then he sends him again to the people whose evil the Lord has seen. And I think we can look out on our world and we can wonder if there's any hope of revival or or repentance or restoration. Uh, I think we can look at our society and wonder how a message will ever get in edgewise. Sometimes I... Uh, unwisely poke my head in on the comments sections um, and de- of debates that are taking place on Facebook or whatever it is, or on a news article typically about religion or politics, and I quickly have to run and close the door and escape um, because the whole thing is so explosive. And, and you want to come in and you want to give people a word of calm and, and a, a word of... Uh, hope and you, you want to give them helpful words, uh, but you'll typically just get your head bit off by both people and then you'll wonder why you went in there in the first place. I mean, if you want to know, have a picture of what society is like today, just go read comment sections on practically anything. And to be honest, there are moments when sometimes I think, well, good. I'm glad that these people are so angry. I hope they get more of what they deserve. And I have my Jonah moments. And I begin to think that people are too far from the grace of God. That they don't deserve it. And the fact is that they don't deserve it. But neither do I. And I need to get my head in. I need to have a belly of the fish moment. 
where God reminds me of the grace that he has poured out for me, where God reminds me that I am not perfect, where God reminds me that, as he will with Jonah in chapter 4, that everyone is created in the image of God. They all bear the image of God. The irony in Jonah is almost comical. The mariners, the the seafarers that he's with in chapter 1, they had that tribal, territorial view of their gods, right? And ultimately, in some sense, they recognize the sovereignty of Yahweh. In some sense, they recognize God is who Jonah said he is. This is my God. He is the creator of the heavens of the earth. And they begin to recognize your God is actually, might actually be the God of everything in the creation. And yet Jonah is the one with the territorial view of Yahweh. He's supposed to look after only his people. That's what God is supposed to do. He's only supposed to look after the Jews. Send me to the Jews and I'll give them a message of repentance. Don't send me to the Ninevites. They're not our people. They're not your people. This book of Jonah is actually read by Jews on the Day of Atonement as part of the uh, expression of repentance. Jews are to follow the example of the pagan sailors and the Ninevites who respond with repentance to the preaching of the word. And we should do the same. If we desire to see revival in our communities, in our cities then I think we need to consider a few things from Jonah. First, God sends his people to proclaim his word. God sends his people to proclaim his word. Romans chapter 10. How then will they, who don't know, call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how can they preach unless... They are sent. A sent one, like Jonah, requires a willingness to go. A a heart that has put itself under God, that recognizes his authority and his will. Revival starts with humility. We saw this in the last two weeks in chapters 1 and 2. It's the the bending, it's the humbling of God's servant. And how many times does God have to do this with us? When we start to think that we know better than what God is trying to do. We know better than Him. We know the situation better. Even if it's not something that we express verbally, it's expressed in the actions that we take. I choose not God a lot. And most certainly more than I should. That's called sin. I choose uh, not to trust God in a lot of things. I forget to act in the way that he has called me to act every day as a Christian. And I have to be constantly humbled and reminded that he is God. And he knows best. And he's told me what is best through his word. And I need to listen. 
revival of a city or a community requires the humility of the individual first. Whoever God sends to Nineveh, that person has to have an attitude of humility before the salvation of people takes place. It's clearly not a perfect humility, obviously in Jonah's case, but in some sense, he knows that this is God's plan. He knows that this is God's plan, and so he relents and he obeys. During the Scottish Revival, the phrase was, bend the church and save the people. Meaning, unless and until the church is bent in humility, the people outside will not listen. And often the people will not listen because the messengers are not humble. They are arrogant. And people don't tend to listen to arrogant people. If our message is for us only and we bar the gates from people coming in to hear the good news, then we are no better than Jonah. It does not mean that we change the message, that we water down the message. That remains the same, but we should be people who long to see the nations coming into churches to hear and learn about the one true God. I saw an interview the other day, and maybe some of you saw it as well, where uh, Anderson Cooper is interviewing Stephen Colbert. And Stephen is a Catholic, and he clearly makes a, a, a clear that he is a believer in Christ, and he, he, he's talking about how God works through uh, tragedies. Uh, and then they move topics, and he says, you say that you don't proselytize people because you feel like that means more Jesus for you. Now, Stephen Colbert's got a very dry sense of humor, so I couldn't tell if he was joking because I don't have a great sense of humor, as all of you know, as you don't laugh at my jokes. But I, I don't know if he's joking or if he's being serious, because that's a very dangerous thought to have, that I'm not going to tell people about Christ, because that means more Christ for me, as if Christ is this bottle of limited grace and mercy, and, and I keep it for myself. That's the way that Jonah thinks, and it's just not true. It's just not true. Jonah is bent low and preaches the message. And what is the response to the message? The Ninevites respond to the message the way we desire all people to respond, the way God desires people to respond in repentance. Not remorse, not rejection, but repentance. Remorse Remorse is just the recognition of the wrongdoing. And it just sort of stays there. And it never goes anywhere. It it has that element of uh, recognition of the fallenness of man, or at least the fallenness of self. And we recognize that we sin and we fall short. But if that's all you get, then you will be falling short of the truth of the gospel. It just comes up short. And so then you begin to set a pattern in your life of constantly feeling guilty. And you have nowhere to go with that guilt. And so you bear this. It heaps up on you. And you're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, carrying this impossible load around. 
There's a story of a, a, a young boy who came to faith at a revival meeting. And he had walked forward uh, to make his profession of faith uh, in front of everyone. And, and, and while he began to have some of these uh, doubts as to whether he was actually saved, he noticed that other people were coming down with just tears streaming down their face, buckets of tears. And he began to ask himself, if this was genuine, if I was genuine, why didn't I cry? Am I actually saved? And as time went on, he began to notice a trend that the people who cried the buckets of tears at the altar were the same people who came forward to the altar every single year and every single time they had a revival meeting. He noticed that uh, after they walked, uh, after they had done this uh, crying and uh, emotional show at the front of the altar, they would walk out the back of the church and you wouldn't show their face in church again until the next revival meeting. And once again, they'd come back on their knees at the altar with buckets of tears, sobbing, and finally it dawned on this boy what was happening. That, that many of those who cried so much, so much, they never changed. They never changed. Although they would use an entire box of tissues at the altar, it appeared that nothing much deeper occurred other than the shedding of tears. And he began to realize that a, a show of emotion isn't always a sign of repentance. Sometimes it's only evidence of remorse. That's not the response we want to see to proclamation. Then obviously there is rejection. Rejection that says no thank you to your message. Your message is seen as just another opinion amongst opinions. It's easily stepped over and looked past. And then there's repentance. Repentance sees the sin, the, the falling short, and then turns around. The Greek word metanoia, to turn away from and to turn towards. To turn from sin and to turn towards God. And there we are, are able to unburden ourselves. And there we find forgiveness. And there we find salvation. And there we find hope. And there we find healing. That's what the Ninevites did. The amazing thing to me as I've read through this account over and over and over through the last few weeks is the amazing speed with which the Ninevites turn. Jonah takes three days in the belly of the fish to recognize and repent and turn. And we talked about last week how that's typically the process that we go through. It takes us step-by-step -step process of remembering who God is and his character. And that's, that's a process situation. But, but the Ninevites turn almost instantaneously. And I wonder, is this to shame Jonah? Is it to shame Israel to whom this was originally written because they were not turning back to God? And they look at this foreign people and they're turning like that? They had this limited view of God and his grace and his mercy, Lord forbid that the church would look like this to the world. The Ninevites obviously turned because God was doing a work in them. He knew that that was going to happen. He just needed Jonah to submit. 
And so what's behind the repentance? What, what are the things that take place here? How do we recognize it? First, belief, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They understood that the words of the human were the words of the divine somehow. Non-believers, when they hear the gospel message, when they hear it preached, they always see it as human opinion. Is that not true in our own experience? Well, that's your opinion. That's your view. That's your worldview. It's just an opinion amongst a bunch of other opinions of what people think of the world and of God and of creation, etc. But when the Spirit begins His work, those eyes are opened and they start to see that it's not just a human opinion. This is actually God speaking to us. So Paul can write to the Thessalonians and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So belief was behind their repentance. There's also appearance, is there not? Uh, That outward demonstration, the, the, the putting on of sackcloth and sitting in ashes, symbols of signs of mourning and regret. Even the king is involved, which is important because he embodies the nation. And even the animals were involved. Why? What a strange concept. In an agrarian society like this, if the animals were all clothed in a sign of repentance, you could not escape it. It would be everywhere you look. It would be everywhere you went. You are constantly being reminded of the spirit of repentance, the decree that the king has made. It's, it's visible. Those symbols are always in front of you. It's like when we have a national disaster like 9-11 or, or, or Pearl Harbor and all the flags are at half-mast. It serves as that constant reminder of what has taken place. Now, if it stopped with those two things... Belief and those outward signs, then it would just be remorse. But repentance is change. It's change of heart. It's change of mind. And it's change of behavior. And we see this in the decree of the king. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Belief, appearance, and the act that shows repentance. And this continues all the way into the New Testament. It has always been a call to repentance. What we don't want is a repentant-less Christianity. It is part and parcel of the gospel message to call people to receive the forgiveness of uh, of sins by God's gracious hand and also to turn away from their evil ways. Finally, Jonah, Jonah is given a message to preach. Part of me wonders why God goes to such lengths 
with Jonah to get him to do this task. Surely there was some other prophet who would have willingly gone and probably have been excited at the opportunity. Surely there's someone who was capable. And God could have done that, but he doesn't. He sticks with Jonah all the way through. And so this man, with all of his uh, issues and his uh, relationship with God, who has this sort of national pride, national jealousy, uh, a view of God that is small, that, that, that God should only care for his people, God sends this man in and he preaches eight words and 120,000 people turn to God. Here's the biblical truth that is underlined. We have to remember that the power of the gospel message is not in the messenger. It is in the message. That's why Paul can write in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then to the Greek. Even Paul didn't think much of himself as a public speaker. But he knows the power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. It is in the message of the cross of Christ that has its own power. It's why Jonathan Edwards was able to stand with his notes an inch from his face and read his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and people are falling on their faces in confession and repentance before he'd even finished the sermon. It's why John Stott could get up with almost no voice and croak out the gospel and people were converted. It's why Jonah, a prophet with all the baggage that he carries, can speak only eight words and 120,000 people are repenting, including the king. Now, I'll admit, it is a great comfort for a preacher. It's a great comfort for any of us who will make some attempt to speak to someone who needs to hear the words of life and truth. We will not get it perfect. We will never get it perfect. But our confidence is not in the messenger, thank God. Our confidence is in the message, and even more so, our confidence is in the one of whom the message is about. So let's be people who are sent. Let's remember who God is in his character. Let's humble ourselves before him. Let's remember it's not about us, it's about him. And who knows what doors God may open. Now typically I would have probably stopped there, but (coughs) I've heard a lot of evangelistic sermons and I'll get a little boost of confidence when I walk out the door but I don't usually go out on Sundays and by Monday I will have probably forgotten the message and so I wanted to conclude with a a, a personal story to help illustrate when I was in Sydney our church offices overlooked a little park And um, I had a colleague that did walk-up evangelism often, and he loved it, and he was very gifted at it. Um, I cringed at that thought. Um, I I, I thought it was impersonal and forced, 
and that was just something he did, and, and he saw a lot of blessing out of that. I was always uh, hesitant. Uh, one day, a young guy who was working in our office came up to my office, and um, he told me, he said, there's a man in the park, and he is just sobbing, crying his eyes out. And to be honest with you, the first thought in my head was, so? <laughs> what do you want me to do about that? Um, a lot of people probably cry in that park. And he asked me, so do you want to come with me and go talk to this guy? And I felt like I was nailed to my chair out of my lack of desire uh, to go and my fear of what would take place because I didn't know what was going to happen. And then I have to sort of heavily pry myself from my chair and we walk to the park and the whole time I'm praying, please, Lord, let him be gone. Please, Lord, let this person not be there. I really don't want to do this. <laughs> and I'm looking around and he's going, I, don't, I think he may have left. And then all of a sudden, I see a man get up, and his face is covered in tears. I thought, okay, here we go. And so I start talking with him, and uh, he clearly did not want to talk with me. And I thought, well, here, this could be an easy out, and I could have just walked away. But I thought, I felt the urging. Nope, talk to him, talk to him. So I thought, okay, there's probably only about two reasons that this guy is crying in the park. It's either a relationship issue or something's happened with his job, his career, some sort of stability thing. And so I asked him, I said, is this a relationship thing? Is it a, a, a job, career thing? And he said, no, it's about God. You wouldn't understand. <clears throat> I thought, well, this is interesting. <laughs> uh, I actually work in the church right behind this hill and his f everything changed. Everything changed. He thought I was just being a good citizen and asking if I could help him. And he all of a sudden realized, well, I'm somebody that's supposed to know more about God than you do. Which is a very terrifying thought. Because he could have known more than I, most certainly. And so he and I sit down and we have this long conversation. And I hear over and over and over again, this man's completely broken, wrong views of who he thinks God is. He has completely misunderstood his character. He is complete, he's been taught very poorly. Uh, he, he's thinking that God is uh, out to get him. He wants to destroy him. And he's laying out all this baggage of guilt that he's been carrying and, and all the problems in his life. And the whole time I'm, saying, I'm praying to myself, don't stay, say something stupid, Lord. Please don't let me say something stupid. But I continued to listen, and when I had an opportunity, I would share truth and try and help and correct his view of who God is. And I showed him from Scripture. And then I said, my, my, my thing is, I don't think you know who Jesus is. I don't think you actually understand and know who he is. And so for a few weeks, we would meet together and read different parts of Scripture, and then eventually he prayed to accept Christ. I do not tell this story to bring any sort of glory to myself. Because if anything, this magnifies my failure. How I didn't want to do this. How I didn't want to go. I was Jonah. And yet God opened a door. Here's what we take away from Jonah chapter 3. 
God cares about people. And that includes you. He wants what is best for you. And it's often not what you think is best for you. God wants people. And he speaks by his word through his spirit about his son through people to people. And so the question and the challenge, at the beginning we talked about the complexity of Jonah. And so we are not going to do this perfectly. But the question is, where are you placing your trust? Will we be like Jonah, who is trying to escape his presence and has to be reined in? Or will we have hearts that, because we have been repentant, and we have received that grace and that mercy, and we know what it feels like, and we begin to have a better picture of what God wants, And so he puts that desire in us to see people, people who are not like us, people who look very different, come to that same saving knowledge, come to that same point of repentance. That we could be like Isaiah, who says, here am I, send me, send me, send me. Father, I confess, I read your word and I think, what is this saying to me and only me? I want the application for me and it's about me. And your word does speak to me and it says it's not about you. But it's about him. For Jonah was given a message, but we've been given a greater message, and that message is the Son Himself, who is the Logos, the Word. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see neighbors and colleagues and people who need to hear the words of life and the words of truth. And though we feel inadequate and we don't have the desire, you put that desire in us. You put the words in us that we may dwell in your scriptures, that we would have right words to give to people, that we would have willing hearts to listen, to hear. Oh, Father, that you would use us. Jonah had eight words and 120,000 people came to you. It's the message. It's the message. Oh, what a comfort that it's not the messenger. But the messenger has to be humble and willing. So use us. Show us those opportunities. Give us eyes to see. We pray this in Christ's name.